This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Come with me this morning in the Word of God. Time has moved on uh, to Luke chapter 9. Before we read uh, just a couple of portions of Luke chapter 9, uh, let me just mention in Luke 8, verse 25, you remember, in fact, we preached in this just a couple of weeks ago where Jesus uh, was in the boat along with the disciples, and that great storm arose, and he stood up and calmed the storm. And it says, They were afraid and marveled, saying one to another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water and they obey him. Who can this be? In Luke chapter 9, reading from verse 18. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others that one of the old prophets has arisen again. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. And then sometime a little bit later, reading verse 28, that came to pass about eight days after these sayings, that he took Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, which appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make, the, make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things that they had seen. People have all kinds of fanciful ideas of who Jesus was. If you were to go out into the street with a clipboard and ask just one simple question, who do you think Jesus was? You would get all kinds of weird and wonderful answers. No doubt. Some may say, well, he was simply a good man, compassionate, a kind man. Others may say he was a, a prophet of sorts. Maybe some would say, well, I, I think he was a, a deluded peasant Galilean who had a messianic complex about himself. 
Some may say, well, it's, he didn't even exist. It's just all folklore. It's just all handed-me-down stories. Israel needed a hero, and so they invented one. But history records such a man as Jesus. You can see in the readings we took there a few moments ago that even the disciples often, even walking with him in very close, intimate relationship, often had difficulty saying, who is this man? He shocked them. He revealed himself in ways that they had never seen before in the Mount of Transfiguration. They were almost dumbstruck with what they saw. And so it's an important question. Who do you say that I am? Flavius Josephus was a Jewish priest at the time of the Jewish revolt in AD 66 against the Romans. He was captured by the Romans. He was imprisoned. Eventually he was set free, uh, became an interpreter for Titus, uh, who was the son of uh, the great Roman general, Vespasian. And apparently that uh, Flavius Josephus prophesied that Vespasian, this great Roman general, would become emperor, which he did. And so history tells us that he became an interpreter uh, for Titus and others, and uh, eventually more or less retired and spent the rest of his days living in Rome, where he became a historian. And he wrote the history of that Jewish revolt and called it the Jewish War. Then he wrote a, a later the Antiquities, which is really the history of the Jews. And in the Antiquities, he mentions Jesus. And here's what he wrote. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles, and he was the Christ, that he was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of the Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. So reputable historians uh, mentioned Jesus of Nazareth. So he was not a, a myth or a fable or a folklore. He was an actual living person. Jesus was by any standard a very remarkable man. Satan had not encountered such a man since Adam in the Garden of Eden. But this last Adam would not be as the first Adam. Adam came into a world that God called good and called his creation man very good. And Jesus came into a world that was fallen, that was sinful, that was rebellious, that was proud, that was wicked. Adam's world was blessed. And Jesus' world was cursed. Adam's world was sublime. And Jesus' world was sinful. Adam's world was beautiful. And Jesus' world was broken. Adam's world was heavenly. Jesus' word was hellish. In Adam's world, it was a garden full of life. 
in Jesus' world, it was a graveyard full of death. But Jesus was different than any man that had ever lived before or since, that ever appeared on the earth. In John 14, 30, here's what he said. The ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. And we know who he was referring to, the ruler of this world, Satan, no less. But no one but Jesus could make such a boast. In fact, when he says he has nothing in me, it's a double negative. He has nothing, nothing in me, absolutely nothing in me. He emphasized that. He has no claim in me. There's nothing in me that belongs to him. He has no power over me. He has nothing in common with me. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Why? How could Jesus make such a claim as this? And so this morning in the moments that we have left together, I want us to focus our thoughts upon Jesus, the Son of God. How could he make such a claim as this? Because, first of all, he was absolutely sinless. Absolutely sinless. Sinlessness means this. Complete conformity to the will of God in thought, word, and deed. None of us has ever accomplished that. Complete conformity to the will of God in every thought, in every word, and every deed. But Jesus did, was and Jesus did. Adam, as a created son of God, was created sinless. Jesus, as the only begotten son of God, was born sinless. Adam had only one nature, human. Jesus had two natures, human and divine. Satan was completely baffled with Jesus. He could not get him to sin. He tried and tried. We know about the three big temptations in the wilderness. But again, the Bible says he departed just for a season, and he came back again and again and again. But he could not get Jesus to sin. Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. Pilate's wife said, have nothing to do with this just man. The dying thief at the last said, this man has done nothing amiss. We deserve what we're getting, but not him. The Roman centurion said, surely this man was the son of God. Even Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, says, I have betrayed innocent blood. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he knew no sin. Peter said in 1 Peter 2, he did no sin. John said in 1 John 1, in him is no sin. The Hebrew writer said he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 7, it says he was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Jesus said about himself, which of you convinces me of sin? Absolutely sinless. Never ever needed to pray for his own forgiveness. Never needed to say, I'm sorry. Never had to say, it was my mistake. 
Never had to say, listen, I messed up. Never one time ever. That's how perfect and sinless the Son of God was and had to be to be our Savior. Satan, therefore, could make no claims on Jesus. He had absolutely no power over him. He had nothing in him. He could not influence him in any way. Imagine that, the one that the Bible calls the deceiver of the whole world, except one person. He could not influence him. No man on earth ever lived like Jesus or could ever live like Jesus. And so because he was absolutely sinless, let me tell you three things about that. His sense of sin was greater. It outraged him. Our sense of sin is dull. We become acclimatized, desensitized to it. Let's be honest. We see things, we watch things, that years ago we never would have dreamed of doing. Why is that? Because we have come accustomed, acclimatized, but not Jesus. Sin outraged him. Why do you think he wept so much at the grave of Lazarus? Yes, he loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He resorted to their home frequently. He felt most comfortable in their house. Yes, his good friend was dead, but he knew he was going to resurrect him. But the tears for the good part of it was because of what sin had done to a human being. Decay had set in. And though it outraged Jesus, things that made him angry was the sinfulness of man and how it destroyed man's life and how it separated man and how it hurt people. And so his sense of sin was far, far greater than ours. His fellowship with the Father was perfect because he was sinless. It's very hard to pray if you're feeling bitter and angry it's very hard to pray, isn't it? Somehow that comes between us and the Father. So, somehow we, we're not at ease in his presence because of the stuff in our lives that come between us and him. But there was none of that in Jesus' life. He had perfect fellowship with the Father. Sometimes when we go to pray, in our hearts and in our minds, we've got to put things right. Because it looks and feels like our prayers is going no higher than the ceiling. But never was like that with Jesus. Simply because there was nothing between him and the Father. Fellowship was perfect. And thirdly, he was not subject to death ordinarily the way that we are. We're mortal, subject to death. Death doomed, it means, but not Jesus. This is why he said, I lay down my life. I give my life. The good shepherd gives 
his life for the sheep. No man takes my life. I give my life. And even though technically men took his life, but they could not have taken his life except that he gave his life. You remember the arrest in the garden? How that whenever he spoke, who are you looking for? And suddenly the power of God came and all of those men that were armed fell to the ground. But he submitted himself and subjected himself to them in the end and went with them. But just showing them that he had the power to prevent it if he really wanted. He says, I could call a legion of angels if I wanted to, but he didn't. He was not subject to death. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Secondly, not only was he absolutely sinless, but he was absolutely selfless. Selfishness is the devil's nature. In Isaiah 14, we see this nature portrayed in verse 12 of Isaiah 14 and following. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who wakened the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit in the mount of the congregation on the furthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. I, I, I. Self, self, self. We know it was pride was Satan's fall, but that was manifested in selfishness. What he wanted, I, I, I. That's the very nature of the evil one. But Jesus was absolutely selfless. He meant to live completely and utterly for the Father's will and to live for others selflessly. He had no other ambition but to please the Father and to serve us that he might save us. He could, he could turn water into wine for others, but he wouldn't turn stones into bread for himself. He was completely selfless. He denied himself. He took up his cross. He laid down his life. His delight was to do the Father's will. I must be about my Father's business. When he was just a lad, my meat is to do the will of the Father. <laughs> That's my whole life, he said. That's what I'm about. That's the thing I want to do continually is to please the Father. In John 8, 28 and 29, he says, you don't need to look at this. He says, I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. For I do always those things that please him. And so there was a, a selflessness, a sacrificial spirit 
an attitude of wanting to do for the Father and do for others, even to the point where he stooped down and he washed his own disciples' feet that they weren't even prepared to do for each other. What a servant's heart he had. Consider the carpenter's shop, knowing that he was the eldest sibling. We don't know when Joseph died. The Bible doesn't tell us that. We can only assume that it was sometime during Jesus' teenage years or perhaps into his 20s. But at some point when Joseph died, Jesus took on responsibility as the main breadwinner of the whole household. Now remember he had other brothers and sisters. The Bible makes that very plain and clear in Scripture. So he took that role upon himself. That would have been expected anyway, but he was utterly selfless. Even though he had come to save the whole world, but yet he had to take care of his family. Completely selfless. Imagine as a boy growing up, being taught by Joseph, a trade, as every Jewish boy would be taught, a trade, and having to submit himself to Joseph and to be taught and to be trained with his hands and to work hard and long hours. But you can be sure that what Jesus made, tables or chairs or whatever it may be, you can be sure he put every ounce of dedication and effort into that. He was utterly selfless. Even at Calvary, in those moments of indescribable pain, when they were driving nails into his hands and his feet, what was he thinking about? Not himself. He was thinking about his executioners. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Later on, during that torture on that cross, he looks down and he sees his mother there, and his heart goes out to his mother. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about his mom. And she's standing there weeping. And John's with her. And he gives John the commission Take care of my mother. Said to Mary, Behold your son. Speaking of John. And even in those horrible, painful, cruel moments on that cross, he thinks about that thief who repented. He said, This man has done nothing amiss. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This day, you shall be with me in paradise. So even at the most extreme torture and torture and pain in his life, he was constantly thinking of others. The old song says, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. He was thinking of us. Selfless. He wanted to share his father's family, the family of the Godhead, the family of angels in heaven, 
But there was something missing. There was something that God had wanted more than the angels in heaven wanted us to share in that family. Hmm. What does the scripture say? Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Imagine Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so longing and wanting us in that family, to be brought into that family. And you know, that's his heart even today, that every one of us belong to the family of God. That's his desire. In John 17, verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, this is his great prayer, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Wanted us to share the Father's glory. wanted us to share not only the Father's glory, but he wanted us to share the Father's love. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect and one, that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And have loved them as you have loved me. He so loved us that he wanted us to share in that same love that the Father had for him. He wanted us to share in that. He was so selfless in his love for us. That's why it's so important in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. I'll read this from the New Living Translation. This is the epitome of of selflessness. Your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. What utter selflessness wanted us to share in the Father's glory wanted us to share in the Father's love and he wanted us to share the Father's house in my Father's house are many mansions if it were not so I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. (laughs) Isn't it wonderful that all of these centuries, for two millennia, Jesus has been preparing the Father's house to receive us. And the day you go to that house, it'll be absolutely perfect for you. You can buy a house today and the walls are painted and the furniture's in and all you need is the key and you walk in and it's all fitted and kitted out for you. Well, that's what your house is going to be like in heaven. If you actually get a key, I don't know. But what I'm saying is it'll be perfectly ready for you when you get there because he's preparing it even as we speak today. And so he was absolutely sinless. He was absolutely selfless, but he was also absolutely fearless. The righteous, Proverbs 28 and 1, the righteous are as bold as a lion. Think about that arrest in the garden. Knowing what was coming. The disciples were sleepy heads. They were tired. They were weary. Three times he went to them. Each time he went to pray. Could you not watch with me one hour? And there he wrestled. To as it were great sweats of blood. Drops of blood come from his forehead while his disciples were sleeping. But he knew what was coming. He knew it was the hour of the power of darkness. It was their hour. And in the middle of the night, no doubt they could hear the clanging of the armor of the soldiers. And they came with their spears and their staves and their clubs and their torches and their lanterns with the betrayer leading them to where Jesus was to that favorite spot that Judas knew so well. And Jesus stood there. Whom seek you? (laughs) He knew who they were looking for. But he wanted them to speak it. (coughs) And in the midst of that mob of brutal soldiers wielding arms he was absolutely fearless no panic no fear completely calm in the face of that what a person what a man what a saviour then of course they took him and bound him couldn't have done that unless he let them but he did we see him before Caiaphas Matthew 26 at his religious trial and Caiaphas they already had made up their mind what the outcome of the trial was going to be it was basically a kangaroo court wasn't it in Matthew 26 
Verse 57, And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they still found none. But at the last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God, excuse me, and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And he answered, He is deserving of death. And they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palm of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? What arrogance. What stupidity. The creator of the universe, the one who knows the secrets of every man's heart. And yet, in the face of that onslaught and provocation, he was perfectly calm. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? People wind us up, don't they? Did you ever get wound up? Hmm? And there's some people, especially, who's got the knack of it, haven't they? I mean, they're experts in it. They just know how to wind you up. They know what buttons to press. But Jesus wasn't wound up. He was perfectly calm in the face of it. In Matthew 27, just the next chapter, this is before Pilate. Verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him, not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Pilate had never, ever seen a prisoner like this one. Pilate was a brutal man. He was. He would have thought nothing of putting people to death. Wouldn't have lost one blink of sleep over it. And yet he's trying and trying to get Jesus released because he knows he is totally and completely innocent. And he hates these Jews anyway. And he despises these Jewish leaders. But they have trapped him. He's got to do something. And so he's almost begging Jesus, defend yourself. <laughs> but Jesus speaks not a word. Never seen a prisoner like that. No doubt he had seen prisoners begging for their lives, pleading with them, 
falling at his feet, but not the master. Completely and utterly calm and quiet, said nothing. Later on in John 19, Pilate says to him, do you not know I have the power to crucify you? Do you not know that? Do you realize who you're speaking to? That's what he's saying. And he had the power of the sword. Those Jews couldn't crucify Jesus without his say-so. They didn't have that power, even though it was their land. He held the power of the sword. Do you not know that I have power to take your life to crucify you? And Jesus very calmly looked him right in the eye. He said, you would have no power at all except it's been given you. He had never met anybody like Jesus. In Luke 23. We'll be through in a moment. The whole multitude arose and led him to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. And when Peter heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him, nothing. Just stood and looked at him. Unemotional, unafraid, unmoved. <laughs> and the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. And that day Pilate and Herod became friends with each other for previously they had been at enmity with each other. So in all these incidents you see that Jesus was completely and utterly calm. Before Ananias, before Herod, before Pilate, before the Sanhedrin, before all of his accusers, he never flinched a second. Before the scribes and Pharisees, he called them hypocrites, vipers, white sepulchers, full of dead men's bones, but nice and white and shiny on the outside. <laughs> Absolutely fearless. Before diseases, before storms, before demons, before the death, fearless. No wonder Satan could not overcome him. I don't know when the last time you felt fear, but all of us at some point in our lives have felt afraid. Something has happened suddenly, maybe unexpectedly, 
Or maybe we knew it was coming, but when it came, no matter how hard we tried, fear rose up in our hearts. If I asked you to put up your hand, every person in the room would put up their hand and say, yes, David, I know what fear feels like. I felt it. I sensed it. I know it. I know those times when the hair stood in the back of my head or that knot was in my stomach and my legs went like jelly. I felt that. Jesus never felt that. Absolutely fearless because he was senseless and because he was selfless. He was absolutely fearless. And then finally, he was absolutely peerless. He had no peers. All of this is peer groups. Maybe those you work with, those you go to school with, circle of friends that you have. But Jesus had no peers. Nobody else could match him. In Colossians 1, 15 to 18, Paul writes these words about Jesus. He said, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Not that he's just prominent, but he's preeminent, peerless. Nobody can match him. Aren't you glad for that? In the book of Hebrews, there's a key thought. Better. Thirteen times this key thought and phrase and word comes in. Speaking of Jesus, better than, more than, greater than. Chapter 1, better than the angels. Chapter 3, better than Moses. Chapter 4, better than Joshua. 7, better than Aaron. 7 again, better than Melchizedek. In Christ we have a better hope. 719. A better covenant, 722. Better promises, 86. Better sacrifice, 911. Better possession, 1034. Better country, 1116. Better resurrection, 1135. Better blood, 1224. Better than, greater than, more than. The Hebrew Christians were going through such turmoil of persecution that many of them were going back to Judaism. And the writer of the Hebrews is trying to encourage them. What do you want to go back to that for? We've got something better than that. Yes, we're being persecuted for Christ's sake, but it's better. He's better than even Moses or Melchizedek or Joshua or whoever. Better than He was absolutely sinless, absolutely selfless, absolutely fearless, and absolutely peerless. This is who he is. Who is this man that even the winds 
and the waves obey him. Who do you say that I am? He's the Alpha and the Omega, isn't he? He's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. He's the author and he's the finisher of our faith. He is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And best of all, he is our Savior and our Lord. And we serve him and we love him and we want to give our lives completely to him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk. Thank you.